still making a deep impact this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. It made a deep impact on all of us half a year ago and an even deeper one on Comet Temple 1. Remember what a kick that was? Jessica Sunshine hasn't forgotten. This mission scientist is still poring over the data. She'll talk about some of the very surprising things we've learned. And stick around for the last visit ever with Bruce Betts. Okay, okay. The last one in 2005. Just enough time for a handful of space headlines. Ring around the big blue planet. Thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope, two new ones have been found at Uranus. The story is at planetary.org. The U.S. Congress has approved NASA's budget. Included in the bill is a directive that NASA create a program to find and track all near-Earth objects that are bigger than 100 meters. And while we'll have much more on the returning Stardust probe next week, we should note that the spacecraft and its cargo of comet and interstellar particles comes home on January 15. Are there spots on Mars where future astronauts will be protected from deadly radiation? As usual, Emily has the answers. I'll be right back with Jessica Sunshine. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Are Mars's local crustal magnetic fields strong enough to protect astronauts from incoming radiation? On the whole, Mars's intrinsic magnetic field is much weaker than Earth's. But Mars Global Surveyor has recently discovered that patches of Mars's crust are magnetized strongly enough that they act like magnetic umbrellas. Mars's mini-magnetospheres ward off the solar wind in their vicinity. However, they don't have any effect on the sun's ultraviolet radiation. The ultraviolet radiation still reaches the lower levels of the atmosphere and surface. Ultraviolet radiation is, of course, one cause of cancer in humans. But it does seem that visiting these magnetized areas of Mars's crust could protect future astronauts from the harmful effects of the solar radiation. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more. Jessica Sunshine got to bask in the glory of Deep Impact success last July 3rd as the spacecraft's impactor made its spectacular and explosive rendezvous with Temple One. The light of that event is revealing never-suspected knowledge about these romantic objects called comets. Dr. Sunshine is chief scientist for the Advanced Technology Applications Division of Science Applications International Corporation, or SAIC. She's also a co-investigator on the Deep Impact team. Jessica, thanks so much for being part of this last-of-the-year planetary radio where we hope to get an update on uh, the Deep Impact mission. My pleasure. So what has Deep Impact taught us about comets, or at least about one comet? Well, we've learned an awful lot about uh, the structure, the internal structure of the comet. Perhaps that's the most uh, surprising result that we got. Temple 1 is very fluffy, sort of something on the order of talcum powder, if not... uh, lighter and smaller in particles. That's why the impact was so dusty and why we couldn't see through it. And we're also uh, beginning to understand where different materials are located in the comet. Your colleague, Micah Hearn, who has been on the show, Mm -hmm. was quoted somewhere as saying, gee, you know, they're going to have real trouble trying to latch on to one of these things with an upcoming mission because (laughs) it's it's powder. Correct. I mean, it's it's more powdery than the... uh, 
I guess, good high-altitude snow. <laughs> so uh, it is going to be an engineering challenge, I think, as well as just trying to stay on the surface, given its low gravity. There have been some other nice surprises, I think, and uh, particularly things that you've been in the forefront of discovering because of your specialty, which I guess you should talk about a little bit uh, and can be summed up as remote sensing and using uh, spectrographic data. Right. My specialty is spectroscopy, and what we do there is look at how uh, light uh, is reflected or emitted off the surface at various different wavelengths. You can think of it as colors uh, with lots of precision. A uh, simple spectrum is, of course, the rainbow, but we look farther into the ultraviolet and farther into the infrared than human eyes can see. And based on those responses, we can identify different materials. Yeah, as we've heard many times on this program, and as most of our audience knows, you can tell from the light either reflected or generated by material, you can get pretty good clues as to what it's made of. That's correct. And I guess you have, at least on this mission, or maybe it's uh, broader than that, uh, specialized in uh, the light that's been reflected. Yes, mostly worked on reflected light. I've done a little bit of uh, atmospheric work here on Earth, and uh, of late have been doing a fair amount of it on the coma of Temple One uh, in terms of emission, gas emission features. What additionally have we learned from Deep Impact, particularly about the composition of Temple One? I've read that a lot of it has to do with with, uh, water and organics. Absolutely. Uh, Those are the two major uh, species that we're dealing with, and of course they're near and dear to us because they are the uh, ingredients that are necessary, if not sufficient, to produce life. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't mean that they came from comets, but it's certainly possible, and maybe some people would say likely, that they contributed to the building blocks of uh, our origins. But in terms of Temple One itself, uh, it's becoming a very interesting story. My personal bias is that uh, we are now understanding it as a geologic body. Uh, Sometime a couple of hours out, Temple One transitioned from an astronomical target to a geologically resolved body. It's really opened up our eyes to understanding how the comet works, which is directly linked to the composition. And probably the most significant thing that's come out of the geology is that Temple One is layered. We're also seeing similar results uh, in the composition. We see differences in the amount of water versus organics that came out as a function of time from the uh, ejecta plume, the Mm -hmm. original vapor plume, which is an indication that there is layering. Um, We're starting to see differences in surface morphologies that may or may not uh, have compositional implications. Um, And it's really causing us to sit back and think about how did this body get put together. The sort of original concepts were that it was uh, kind of a rubble pile that aggregated uh, materials from the interstellar media kinds of processes, which seems to be the case in that we have very fine particle material, and yet we have this obvious uh, signature of layering, which is a bit puzzling yet. You're dealing with this, you said now, this transition from an astronomical to a geological object in the same way that we now are learning about Mars as a geological uh, object as we crawl around and look at its composition. Oh, absolutely. Um, This is probably more dramatic in that we've at least had other images of Mars. This was uh, the first for this particular comet Mm. and by far the best resolution we've had on any comet. Are you finding more or less of the expected components of uh, Comet Temple 1 than you expected before Deep Impact got there? Well, um, it's not a question of, well, let me try it this way. There's two issues. 
we found mostly the materials we expected. The question was not necessarily how much, but where, and uh, what causes them to come out at different times, and what, where are they located within the body, and what does that tell us about uh, how they're processed. I think probably the single most surprising compositional result to date was that uh, when we looked at the ejecta, we increased the amount of water and carbon dioxide by a factor of about 10. Wow. But the organics increased by a factor of 20. And uh, that was certainly a surprise. What does this, particularly in the case of the organics, does this begin to suggest something about the early composition of the universe or at least our solar system? Uh, you know, we're still flushing it out. We're trying to understand that the differences between what may be, uh, let's say, residuals from prior outbursts that may increase the organic content near the surface um, versus what is really uh, original compositional gradients. And it's a little early to say yet. What about the, the abundance of water and carbon dioxide? Is same same for those, a little early to say? Well, what we're in the process of doing right now is trying to understand, again, it's not so much that they're there, but where do they come from and how do they get there? Um, We're uh, in the process of understanding how variations that we see actually within the coma, the atmosphere of uh, Temple One itself, uh, are related to potential different areas on the surface and different uh, uh, outgassing events. Hmm. Uh, We're also trying to compare and actively working on understanding the difference between the materials that came out from our natural impact and the outburst, I'm sorry, our man-made impact and the natural outburst that we caught uh, about a week before the uh, impact. Um, We saw similar but not the same materials um, in different abundances. And again, that's likely to tell us something about uh, the layering and where different materials are located. I have not read about this. Now, is this the the natural outflow of material as a comet nears the sun and just stuff boils off? Well, what happened was, um, in retrospect, perhaps not too surprising, but Temple 1 was probably is the best studied comet since uh, Halley, and in particular because we had this extensive ground-based campaign as well as a bunch of uh, our space-based telescopic assets, we're watching the comet both before and after impact to get a baseline to compare the impact event as well as our spacecraft was taking data every four hours, we had the best temporal sequence of cometary activity uh, very close to perihelion that anybody's had. And we saw uh, in various instruments uh, a series of outbursts. That is the natural outgassing, um, which we assume at this point, but certainly haven't concluded, has something to do with areas heating up and releasing their gases. Mm-hmm. Uh, only a few of them were able to get compositional information, but we are uh, have been able to now that we understand the size, the orbit, the period, and the shape and pole location of the comet, we can actually trace those individual outbursts to where they came, or at least the general area that they came from. Hmm. And some of them seem to be recurrent, others don't. Um, we had one outburst that happened uh, repeatedly from the same area, uh, several periods in before the encounter, but the one right before the encounter didn't happen. Huh. So, you know, nature's always mysterious. <laughs> but I think we will learn an awful lot about that part, which is, of course, a very important part of cometary processing. We'll have more from Deep Impact co-investigator Jessica Sunshine when Planetary Radio continues. 
This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio, where we're talking with Jessica Sunshine, a co-investigator on the Deep Impact mission. With all this new data about one comet, I had to come back to the question I started with. I started out by uh, wondering, what have we learned about comets, or have we only learned about Temple One? I mean, how much of what we are learning can be applied to these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other objects that we call comets? Well, I think a fair amount of it is. Um, first of all, Temple is a very, from every way that we can measure it, is a very typical comet, uh, at least for Jupiter family comet. It's middle-aged, if you will. It's neither particularly young or particularly old. And what we're very much focusing on is the the processes that are occurring on the comet, which have to occur on others. Uh, for example, there's no question that if Temple 1 is producing outbursts on a regular basis as it approaches the sun, so much other comets. Hmm. And in fact, people are now going back to previous data sets where they might have seen something funny that they ignored on other comets that may in fact have been outbursts. Wow. Um, and I think the structural component, the geologic history of Temple One, uh, is telling us a lot. Yet, on the other hand, it is very different from uh, Vild Two geologically. Uh-huh. So comets have clearly gone through different origins that we need to understand. Uh, it's fairly similar to Borelli, from what we can tell, but uh, Vild Two is a is a different beast. Is it still fair, do you think, to describe these using the old metaphor of a dirty snowball? Probably uh, fair. Um, I think um, we're, from what we could tell at least of the ejecta, the dust to gas ratio is about one to one. So, you know, you could decide whether it's a snowy dirt ball or a dirty <laughs> snowball. Um, I think we kind of expected it to be much more of a, a clearly uh, dominated by organics than it was. I'm sorry, by um, uh, gases than it was. So we expected more water to dust than we saw. Uh, here's the question that you probably were expecting, uh, particularly <laughs> as you already know, don't you, as uh, a few thousand uh, Planetary Society uh, folks and listeners, I bet, are wondering how big that crater is. And, you know, of course, somebody's hoping still to win a prize out there out of this. Well, I think uh, one of my colleagues said a couple of days after the impact, we know who lost the bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, our official statement, I believe, is that it's somewhere between 100 and 200 meters. Hmm. Okay, and um, I, don't, I don't think a winner has been named yet. So. Yeah, I think uh, I'm correct that they're going to do a lottery based on the people who came in with the range. Um, the problem, of course, is that we had so much fine, not only dust, but it was very fine submicroscopic dust, 
we couldn't see directly uh, the impact site, but we've um, done a lot of work in trying to infer it based on uh, cratering physics, as well as some constraints of uh, areas that we could clearly see before and after the impact, uh, which give us upper bounds on the sides of the crater. What's the future for deep impact? The spacecraft itself is kind of in um, space mothballs, if you will. Mm. Um, it's uh, on its way back to the Earth, which makes it possible for us to change its course and point it somewhere else. Um, we're going to be putting an extended mission proposal, which, if it's selected, um, would head us toward the comet Botan in 2008, I believe, um, which would give us an opportunity to have a look at yet another comet to understand, you know, the question you asked, how representative is, is Temple 1, and, yeah. and particularly the processes that we saw. Well, good luck with that uh, request for an extended mission. Uh, at the moment, your spacecraft is not the only one returning from a comet. It's a good time for comet research with Stardust uh, returning to Earth, bringing back little comet bits and maybe some interstellar stuff. Uh, not long after uh, this program is uh, is heard. In fact, we're going to devote next week's show to a little preview of that return of Stardust. Is there is there anywhere where these two missions uh, intersect, Deep Impact and, and Stardust, at least in terms of the, the data that uh, you might hope to see from Stardust? Well, absolutely. First of all, already the imaging results have been very helpful, comparing uh, VIL-2 to Temple-1 in order for us to understand, because they're so different, the origin of comets and what history they've come through. We have to be able to put both of those into the same scenario. Uh, obviously, different histories, but they have to have some common knowledge, commonality to them. Um, and that's something that's been a very important constraint into our thinking of our own results. Um, the samples themselves um, are critically important and particularly close to my heart because they're going to answer uh, a lot about the structure. You know, what is the scale and how are these things put together of the, the small materials that we now know make up the comet? It's our only real look at how they're put together. And, of course, the theory is that it's very similar to the interstellar dust that we see, but we won't know until we see it. And hopefully we're going to see it soon. And uh, hopefully uh, your team will get to take another look at uh, yet another comet. Uh, but uh, we knew moments after that impact, that deep impact, had uh, made itself one of the most successful interplanetary missions of all time. So It was quite a fun, yeah. fun experience. Well, congratulations once Thank again you. for that. And we'll, we'll uh, check back uh, as more data becomes available. Great. Thanks so much for uh, being on Planetary Radio, too. My pleasure. Jessica Sunshine has been our guest. She is uh, Chief Scientist of the Advanced Technology Applications Division of a fascinating company called Science Applications International Corporation, which uh, if we had time we would talk more about, but also uh, a key player in the uh, science team for the Deep Impact Mission, uh, which returned all that wonderful data from the big hole it made in Comet Temple 1 just about half a year ago. We'll continue Planetary Radio with What's Up and Dr. Bruce Betts, our last What's Up edition of the year, right after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. If local magnetic fields on Mars can shield the surface from the solar wind, could they also protect astronauts from cancer? The problem with this question is that the first astronauts sent to Mars will be exposed to solar radiation long before they land. The majority of their exposure will happen not during any surface operations on Mars, but instead during the long journey to Mars. What is the risk that astronauts face from this exposure? 
First, consider the risk that humans on Earth face. It's big. A healthy 40-year-old non-smoking American male stands a 20% chance of eventually dying of cancer if he stays on Earth. How much is that risk increased during the long journey to Mars? It could be as little as 2% or as much as an additional 20%. It's probably true that many young astronaut candidates would be willing to accept a doubling of their risk of developing life-ending cancer in order to become the first human to walk on Mars. Eventually, our leaders will have to face the ethical question of how great a cancer risk we are willing to allow our brave explorers to take. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio@planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. It's the last Planetary Radio episode of the year 2005, and therefore the last installment of What's Up with Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Happy New Year, Bruce. And happy end of the year to you, too, Matt. <laughs> so what's up? Is that kind of a half-full, half-empty thing? It could be. I'm a half-full guy, so I, I, I didn't even are, realize Matt. that. I know you are, Matt. That's why we enjoy you so much. <laughs> Well, then you should be half full of delight with what's up in the night sky. Got uh, evening sky, of course, Venus still bright, but starting to drop away. But you can see it just after sunset, looking very bright in the west. Mars now uh, basically in the south after sunset and fading, 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 but still orangish and still looking like a bright star. And in the pre-dawn sky, you've got... Jupiter, and Jupiter is up fairly high now in the east, just before dawn. And you can uh, also catch Saturn rising around 8 p.m. It's below Castor and Pollux, the twin stars of Gemini. Haven't I haven't seen Saturn lately. I've, I've got to get out there uh, now that it's up in there, the evening. Yeah. Take a it's look. It's up in the evening. It's very, very good in the evening. And take out that, that lovely telescope of yours and check out some rings. Thank you. I will. And, of course, don't miss the meteor shower. Oh, yeah, those quat- quatratids or whatever those they're quatratids. called. Did I get it right? Yeah, wow. close enough, as close as I'm getting it. Just doesn't say much. <laughs> yes, peak on the January 3rd, 4th, and if you go out there and stare up at the sky, maybe you'll get up to a meteor a minute on average in a dark site. And no, no, uh, very little to no moon to interfere with it, so a good thing other than, uh, if you're, if you're chilly in the northern hemisphere, but you Australians have a great time, mm. uh, out in the warm evening. Surf's up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to this week in space history. I know you're excited. 205th anniversary. 205th anniversary on January 1st of Giuseppe Piazzi's discovery of the first asteroid to be discovered, Ceres. Is that right? He yeah. started right out with the biggest one. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but is, Ceres is the biggest one, right? Isn't it? No? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, just started right in. You know, I, I guess that kind of makes sense since it's Well, it'd be the easiest see. one to find. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay, let's move on to a human space flight update. Those progress supply ships, those darn reliable things launched, and launched by the Russians out of Kazakhstan, taking some, uh, some Christmas presents, some food, some supplies, uh, successful launch at the time recording there. They're not quite uh, docked with the International Space Station, but will be shortly and before this airs. So that's good. And uh, getting some new supplies up to Bill MacArthur and Valerie Tokarev. Tons of fun for the guys on the ISS. 
Is it ton- it is. It, yeah, is. it is tons of fun. Nearly three tons of fun just in the supplies that it's going there. On to Random Space Fact! That was positively majestic. Oh, thank you. Speaking of majestic voices, on Mars, if you could speak, your voice would sound much lower and fainter. When we've had demonstrations of that on, uh, we on have planetary on planetary radio, website. but I just wanted to remind people. Cool. And you can go to planetary.org/sounds, and you can hear the Marsinator, and hear famous people like me. Yeah, uh, no, they're real famous people on there too, like Ray Bradbury and, and Bill uh, Nye, I think, and Bill Nye, yeah. having their voices altered like they would sound on Mars. But what's interesting, to give you a bonus random space fact, is that your voice on Titan would sound very similar despite them being such different atmospheres. Oh, yeah. Because on um, you've got a serious temperature difference ah. that's causing the main difference on Titan and a big compositional difference as well as temperature on Mars compared to the Earth. Oddly, they result in nearly the same shift in sounds. Not that anybody's going to be testing this in person anytime soon. No, and then uh, even if you went there, it'd be uh, kind of chilly and, you know, painful. Yeah, But just as you're pondering things, as you're musing, as we so often muse on this show, shall we muse on to the trivia contest? Yeah, let's do that. We asked you, what was the first wheeled vehicle on the moon? The first wheeled vehicle on the moon. Turns out all those wheeled vehicles were partying on down to the surface within a very short period of time. How'd we do? Very close call here. We had one entry that I actually had to do some research on. Uh, Paul Corman of Bellevue, Washington, talked about the MET, which I had never heard of. You had the Modular Equipment Transporter. It was kind of like a a rickshaw (laughs) loaded with stuff for the astronauts to pull around on Apollo 14. But I determined that that actually was after the first wheeled vehicle, the one you had in mind, Lunacod 1. Yes, Lunacod 1, the Russian vehicle on the Luna 17 lander was the first of the wheeled vehicles on the moon, followed by the MET, followed by, the uh, lun- of course, the lunar rover on Apollo 15 through 17, and followed by another Lunacod as well. And our winner was Del Parma. Del lives in, I guess it's Wigan, England, Great Britain. And uh, Del, you're not going to get a Planetary Radio T-shirt. You're going to get a mug. This was the the week we're giving you out that mug you were talking about. That ugly mug. No, that beautiful mug. It's a beautiful mug. <laughs> oh, you were talking about me. No. Yeah, no. The the mug is actually beautiful with a uh, beautiful landscape from Spirit, the Spirit rover on Mars, and three reasons why you'd rather live on Mars. So very clever stuff. So uh, Fun stuff. if you, if you aren't our winner, you can find things like that on the Planetary Society website, planetary.org. Now, what are we doing on uh, Trivia Contest, Matt? We ain't doing one. We would normally now give you the new Trivia uh, Contest question, but not this week, folks. Sorry about that, because in two weeks, we're going to have a reprise, a previously owned version of Planetary (laughs) Radio. We're going to – it's just because of vacation schedules and so on, but we think you'll enjoy it. We had a lot of interest in the – the Planetary Society's 25th anniversary show that we did excerpts from with all that that incredible list of uh, guest stars, you know, Bill Nye and Buzz Aldrin and Ray Bradbury and, and Don uh, Golden, the uh, former uh, NASA administrator. So we're going to do that uh, during the week of uh, January 9th. So no contest this week, but come back next week. That'll be Dan Golden. Did I, what did I say? Don Golden. Don? 
oh, that's so stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. No, I would. Yeah. I would. Okay. Well, All anyway. Right. Anyway, we've corrected that. So I, I feel at a loss without a trivia question, but but we'll, we'll be back uh, next week with more trivia. We will. And I just want to say uh, that it has been another delightful year of working with you on What's Up, this <laughs> oh. this very enjoyable portion of our little radio show that uh, heads out to people every week. The little radio show that, that could. could. And indeed, it has been an honor working with the likes of you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, and have a wonderful and happy new year. Everyone, including you, Matt, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about something really fun you're going to do during this next year. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts. He's here every week, thank goodness, for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Stardust next week. Happy New Year, everyone.